We won't be uh, having any PowerPoint slides tonight, but we will stay primarily in one book. It'll be the book of Micah, It'll be the book of Micah and uh, 818 in the Bible that's in your pew. And we will be reading several verses from there. So I hope that you'll open up your Bible as we study along together. I want to encourage you uh, to think about good stewardship and then also to think about opportunities. Uh, sometime during this week, you're probably going to run into somebody that you didn't know you were going to run into and you haven't thought about right now who that may be, but it probably will happen. And if you're like me, you probably will find yourself saying, I wish I would have picked up one of those family day cards so that I could give this to them right now. I want to encourage you, wives, women, uh, ladies, be sure and pick up a couple of these tonight. They're not going to do us any good laying around after this week. These are outdated after this week. Put it in your purse, and when you see somebody, give it to them this week. Guys, put it on the dash of your car. Carry it with you. Have it within reach so that when you see that person and you're like, hey, I want to invite you to family day. Hold on. I'm going to get this out of my car. Let me give it to you. When we hand somebody something with an invitation that who's, has the who, what, when, and where, it makes your invitation genuine. It's proven to them you don't want them for, to forget it. Because you know how it is when somebody tells you of a place you're not familiar with and times you're not familiar with and a date you're not familiar with, you remember that about as long as the conversation lasts and then you forget it when you walk away. This helps it stick in their mind. Also, please pick up the yard signs. If there are any left, and there may not be any left yet, but if there are, let's get them out this week. This is our week. This is an opportunity that God is giving us to make family day the best it can be made. And, and I'm not trying to be silly and I'm not trying to put on a guilt trip either. All God expects us to do is, is all that we ought to feel like we have to do. It's not, do we put pressure on each other? It's what are we gonna to do to fulfill God's will in this? And if you just look around left or right, it's within these walls. There's not going to be an outside crew that comes in and knocks doors this week. There's not going to be somebody that sits down and says, hey, I know you're busy. Can I call your people for you? Nobody's going to be doing that unless you got a spouse that maybe picks up your slack. But, but the, the, the fact is, we can do it. And so let's make sure, pick up the cards tonight. Uh, if I can think about it, I'll try to have a few folks standing out in the, in the foyer just to jog your memory to get those cards out of their hands. And, uh, and then be thinking. Who's five people that you can invite? Pray about it and give them a sincere invitation. Even if they don't come this year, it's planting a seed in their life so that if something happens and they have a desire one Sunday morning to say, I want to go to church somewhere. We want the Mount Juliet Church of Christ to be on their mind. And if we aren't giving the invitations and if we're not letting people know that we love them, we care about them, nobody else is going to do that from this place. And so let's make sure that we do our part and that we, we really work hard to make this the best that it can be. We appreciate Greg Coles and all he is doing and several others that are helping on this day. And the reminder to bring desserts. Uh, for the lunch, they'll follow the late service Sunday morning. And then also keep in mind that all of the adult Bible classes will be combined this coming Sunday. And then a work day will also take place just to help things get kind of in a, in a spring cleaning like condition, even though it's fall, or at least by the end of this week, it'll be fall. And so uh, be, be planning if you can about nine o'clock, there will be work for men and women 
uh, inside and outside of things that will need to be done. And so if you can do that Saturday at 9, or even if you can't come to a little bit after that, that would be wonderful to be a part of, the, uh, of that day. It's interesting as we think about the man Micah. Even though he only has a short book and because of the length of the book, he falls under the category of the minor prophets. I don't really know how much those prophets would like for us to call their work minor when absolutely they probably did as much as many of what we call the major prophets. It's just when it came to writing, they wrote shorter books. It doesn't mean they were involved in a lesser important work. It doesn't mean that they didn't accomplish as much as others. It's simply to say that what they wrote was shorter. At the end of the eight. About the end of the 8th century, counting down, we have Israel that will soon fall and Judah that will last a little longer. And he is the man that, that walks into town from the country. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible open, you kind of get an idea how far out that he was. If you see there in the first chapter in verse 14, there is the mention of a town there, Morsheth Gath. And the, really, he was only from Gath. But yet his little community was so small that oftentimes it was linked with Morsheth because Morsheth was a larger town. And, and it's like when people ask me, where'd you grow up, David? Oftentimes I will say something like this. Well, I grew up in a little community called Brushy and it's close to Centerville. Well, that would be just like saying Centerville Brushy. And of course, most people don't even know where Centerville is because it's not very large place either. And so then I have to say, you know, maybe you've heard of Columbia and Dixon. We're kind of the triangle between there. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. I can imagine Micah trying to explain to people where he lived. Now, what's the significance to that? Well, there may not be a lot of significance to it, but to understand the story, the story was something like this. God sent this man that was from a little community kind of out in nowhere is the way we would use the expression today. And of all places, God says, I want to send you to the capital city of Judah. You're going to walk in to Jerusalem. And I have some messages that I want you to give the people there. And this man made a difference. Because of his preaching, Jerusalem repented. And because of their repentance, they actually... Uh, um, endured in their city because God was able to protect them and keep their enemies away for another 100 years. And so here is one man that made a difference. But there's something interesting to me. And I'm only going to give this to you as a way to say, maybe there's something significant to this, but by no means would I say there has to be a significance, but I'd like to make an application from it that I believe is significant. Several of the prophets were told about their calling. Isn't it interesting when you think about the great prophet Isaiah? You can go to Isaiah the sixth chapter and you can see the Lord showing him a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Now, if you don't think this is great, you imagine it being you. What if you lived back in those days and God comes and shows you a vision and you see the Lord on a throne high and lifted up and you see the cherubims flying around and they're worshiping God and you see a scene that is so humbling to you because you see the greatness of God, you realize how sinful you are and, and he cries out realizing his sin and he says, I, whoa, I'm undone, I'm ruined in other words. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from people of unclean lips 
And so it's then that the cherubim flies over and takes a tongue and takes a coal off the altar and he touches his lips to symbolize that he can have his sins forgiven and that he can be cleansed. And so from there now, he has in the presence of God a worshipful scene and he's humbled and now he's sought atonement and he's cleansed and the Lord says, who shall I send and who will go for me? And you know the words. Isaiah said, Lord, here I am, send me. And Isaiah tells you that story. That's how I got into the ministry of being a prophet. You say, wow, I hope God gives me something like that. I want some big glorious day like that to happen in my life so I can say, now I'm ready to do great things for God. Have you ever noticed that little story in Luke, the fifth chapter? It's one of my favorite stories in, in all of the Bible. And, and it's about Peter going out fishing all night long. And then, and then the next morning, Jesus asked, can I step into your boat and, and take me out and, and let me preach to this crowd? Here's Jesus preach. Doesn't really touch him to the point that something's about to touch him. After that, he says, well, go out deeper. And, and, and you know, Peter's, Lord, we fished all night. We've not caught anything. And then he remembers who he's talking to. But at your command, I'll go out. And, and he puts his nets in and and because of the power of Jesus being involved in this, his net's so full that one boat can't hold it. He calls for his partners. They fill up two boats to the point that they're about to sink. And he turns around and he falls on his knees and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O God. What just happened right there? He recognized the fact that he was in the presence of the powerful, almighty God in flesh before him. And it was there that the Lord tells him, you'll no longer fish for fish, but you'll fish for men. And you know what it says right there? They left their nets. They turned their back on it. And they followed him. Imagine sitting around with Peter, saying, Peter, tell me, what was the turning point that caused you to just leave the boats and the nets behind? And Peter says, I don't really know why. One day I just said I'm going to let... No! It was a huge turning point. He would have said, are you ready for this? Let me tell you about this story. And you know, we would have gotten done with that story and we would have said, wow, I want a story like that in my life. But tonight, can I intrigue you in the ordinary? What if there's something beautiful about the ordinary? where you don't have to have some big story as a reason why you serve God? What if you don't have some big sign in your life for why you wake up every day and say, I love God with all of my might and I want to serve Him today. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us Micah's story. What caused a guy from a little country town to leave that town and have enough courage to walk into the capital city and say, I want to begin by casting judgment on you. And we're about to read it in a minute, and he didn't hold back. We'd use the expression, he unloaded on them. What gave him that courage? Tonight, the underlying message that I hope you'll get is we don't need anything in our life that's the extraordinary to do right. 
We simply need to know the awesome will of God. So tonight, as we think about this lesson, and, and maybe you've been holding back, and maybe you've been saying to yourself, you know how many times in the short time I've been in ministry, I've heard someone say, I've been thinking about responding for months. And I just haven't done it. I don't know why. You know how many times I've heard that? Well, tonight, what about if you don't wait for some, some extraordinary sign in your life? What if you just say, I believe God. I believe in His will. And I can be a Micah-like person. I don't have to have something special except God. That's enough. Well, what is it that happened? Let's turn through a few pages here and see a little bit of the history and a little bit of what was happening in Judah at this time and, and see what this man was doing and then see this simple thing. Do you know what's good? Has God ever showed you what's good? If we look in the scriptures, he has. So then the question is, am I listening? If he has shown me, am I listening? As we look here at the, the first part of the book of Micah, we see in the very first verse First chapter, first verse, that he served in his prophecy during three kings there, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, if he was just at the very, very end of the first one, and then he quit at the very, very beginning of the third one, that would span at least 16 to 20 years in his ministry, but odds are he served much during the time of the first one, the second one, even the third one. And so that could take his, his ministry as a prophet. It could expand it as much as 55 years. And so when we talk about him being successful, that, that Jerusalem listened to him, please get this simple point. He probably had to talk the will of God for years and years before Jerusalem really started listening. What's the point of application? The point of application is we can't give up. We must do the right thing. We must say the right things to our kids. We must interact in the right way with our spouses. We must be the neighbor to our neighbor on the left and the right and the one across the street and the one behind us that gets on our last nerve. We must be what we need to be to them no matter what. And somebody says, I, how long? Endure, endure. Will anything good come out of it? Anytime we do God's will, good eventually comes. And, and Micah is a perfect example of where he made a difference in an entire city, but we don't know how many decades he had to work in that city before the city woke up and listened to the will of God. You want to preach a powerful sermon, do it by the life that you live. And the most powerful sermon lived out is consistency. We're going to get to in just a few minutes some, some vogue words, some hot topic type words like radical. You want to do something radical in your life? Get up and serve God every day. And stack that together for decades. That's radical. If you're waiting for that one-time event in life where, where something comes along and I can jump on a big bandwagon and I can do something that's going to change the whole world, and so I'm kicked back and I'm just waiting for that wagon to come along, we've missed the most important aspect of living. And it is the daily consistency with God. You remember we said that when Micah came into town, he spoke the judgment of God. I hear this almost every week, if not every few weeks, where someone says, well, you know, we can't really judge. We can't really know what's right and wrong. Where does that come from? You know when people say that they haven't read the Bible. The Bible is full of judgment. 
The judgment that we do not do is God's judgment. But the idea of judging, which simply means to divide, this is wrong, this is right, that's what we're required to do as Christians all the time. And so now God gives him a message to say, I want you to walk in Jerusalem and I want you to cast judgment upon them because this is a message from God. Let's listen to this. Uh, let's read the first chapter, verse two. Hear all you people. See how it's an announcement, exclamation mark. Hear all you people. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. You notice the word from there? Why do you think it's from? Because God is saying through Micah, I'm going to leave this temple and I am going to come down to visit you and it's not going to be good. Did your parents ever say something like this to you? Don't make me get up from this chair. If you've ever heard something like that in a much more serious sense, that's literally what God is saying through the mouth of Micah. God's in his temple right now, but he's not going to stay in his temple because he's going to come down and the havoc and the revenge that he's going to reap upon your righteousness, you're going to know that the almighty God has been there. Well, what's he going to do? Let's just see some things he's going to do to kind of set the scene and then we'll move on. For behold, this is verse three. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and he will tread on the high places of the earth the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And then he continues with that same kind of language. And what he ends up doing is spending a little bit of time on the northern kingdom of Israel, and soon they would fall. And then he spends more time on Judah to talk about their situation and how they ought to repent. So we see that, that he's literally coming in as a mouthpiece for God to say, I'm casting judgment on you, and right now it's not good at all. If they repent, this judgment doesn't have to come to pass. But if they continue to live like this, this is the judgment that is coming in to their lives. Well, what were they doing? He gives us a few different examples. And of course, in this time's sake, we can't study all seven chapters. But I'd like to give you a highlight when we ask the question, what were they doing? Let's look at a couple of chapters. Look at the second chapter. We have the noble people, how they would sleep at night and how they would rise up. And, and the noble here is being offset, if you will, by the way that they treat the poor. The common person, if you will. In Micah, the second chapter, verse one, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. You get the picture there, don't you? They sleep at night, except they don't sleep all night. Part of the night, before the, the sun rises, they lay in bed and they devise plans in their mind how they, because of their influence, being noble, they have an influence over the courts, they have an influence over the wealthy, they are the wealthy, and so what they do while they're laying in their bed, they devise a plan of how they can take more houses away from the poor when they get up in the morning. And when it comes time for morning, they get up and they work their plan. They take families away from families. They take houses away from families. They literally practice injustice. 
justice. It's a very, very important biblical word. It's very, very heavily discussed today. Are we practicing social justice? Friends, as it's discussed today, it deserves attention because it's something that has deserved attention almost since the very beginning of time. Where was this coming from? The social injustice here was literally coming from the wealthy. The ones that ought to be offering the solution were literally the ones escalating the problem. Now let's go to the third chapter, which by the way, just a point of interest, you see in verse 8, lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment and etc. Why did God call them an enemy? You remember Matthew, the 25th chapter, when we help the least of these, Jesus says, you've helped me. Here, the opposite is taught. What about when we, God's people, hurt the least of these? The Lord says, you've hurt me, and now you've become my enemy. Isn't that a shame to think that if we are in the position that we could use our influence, our resources to help someone, but instead we take advantage of them? God here is stating, you've become an enemy of God in order to do that. Now we go to the third chapter and we see him talking not only to the nobles, but now he's going to talk to the rulers of the land, those in authority. And some of these in authority would have been even in religious authority. And notice what he says in verse 1. He said, Here now, o heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? See that point? Shouldn't the rulers be the one making sure that justice prevails? Well, let's see what they were doing. You who hate good and love evil. So we already see a big problem with the court system there. Who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the caldron. What is being said here? Now, some of you, there need to be two things for you to really understand this from my viewpoint. You need to be somewhere around my age or older, and you would need to grow up kind of out in the country. Because you see, we skin things regularly. That was almost a part of weekly living there. You know when I knew I was really in trouble? Whenever my mama looked at me and she'd kind of get a firm chin, almost like she was pointing her chin, but then she would follow it with a pointed finger and she'd say, son, I'm going to skin you. Now that sounds funny today, but I understood exactly what it was because maybe that week I'd already skinned out a possum or a raccoon or a cow or a deer. And, and you know, I knew well what that meant. Now, I didn't really know what it meant in the sense that I didn't think my mother was really going to flay me but I knew it was serious. And you see what God's saying here. God says, all right. He says, you are the leaders. You are the rulers. You are the ones that's in charge of justice. Somebody does something wrong, they're supposed to be able to come to you and you not only demand justice, you create justice. You're the one that makes justice active in the life of this nation. And instead, people are coming to you and you're skinning them. You're flaying them. You're taking people's lives and you're chopping it up in pieces. How's it looking for the people of Jerusalem? They lay in bed at night and figure out how they can steal people's families and houses. 
They go to the court systems and they figure out how they can chop people's lives in pieces. It's not looking good for them. And so skipping over, they're important things, but for time's sake, the Lord literally brings these people to court, if you will. Look at the sixth chapter. In the sixth chapter, he says to them, and, and, and in the court here, he's going to have, create a trial. And in the trial, God's going to be the prosecutor. He's also going to be the judge. Now, he's going to be fair. He's going to let the people have a jury. And the jury's going to be made up of the hills and the mountains that surround Jerusalem. And so he's going to let anybody that wants to be a witness, including the hills and the mountains, to hear this case, and then justice is going to prevail. Because keep in mind, they're not being just. And so God is going to make sure that justice prevails. And so notice how this goes. We're in the first verse of the sixth chapter. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. See how he talks like it's a trial? Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth for the Lord has a complaint against his people. He will contend with Israel. Okay? We already know a portion of what God's complaint is going to be is the things that we've just read about. But then notice verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Now he's giving them a chance. I can tell you God's saying all the things I have against you. But now you go ahead and speak up. The mountains are listening. What have I done to mistreat you? And over the following verses, he talks about how he led them out of bondage and he gave them leadership with Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And then he talks about things they did. He talks about things that they did down in Gilgal and and their, their adultery and the punishment for their adultery and the immorality that they had practiced. And so what he's doing is he's saying under this court of law, if you will, uh, hypothetically speaking here, he's saying, when I talk to you about the things I've done, I've, I've dealt very justly with you. And later in a minute, we're going to see this next word. I've dealt merciful in a merciful way towards you. But yet when I look at you, Israel, I don't see justice in you. Instead, when I look back at your history, I don't see that you have even appreciated what I've done. And I see you mistreating the people that are my people. And so he's, he's really creating a system here that looks terrible for them. So then the question is, how could you make it right? What could the people do? Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Pause there for a moment. Do you see, he's, he's giving this picture that is our human nature. Israel now is looking at how horribly sinful they've been. And then the human nature is going to be, now this, as I say it this way, probably everybody here is going to say, oh, I wouldn't do that. But when you don't word it like this, we do tend to try to do this sometimes. But human nature is, I want to buy God off. I've really mistreated God. So I need to figure out a way to, to buy God off here. And so if God likes oil sacrifices... What I'm going to do is not just bring him one container of oil. I'm going to bring him a river of oil. No, no, not just a river. I'm going to bring him 10,000 rivers of oil. And if if God wants a ram, I'm going to bring him thousands of rams to offer. Is that what God wants? 
You remember 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, when, when Saul was supposed to go out and kill all Amalek, and, kill, and instead he preserved Agag's life and, and, and he preserved all of the spoils. And, and then when he was questioning why he did that, first he tried to blame the people and then he tried to use the excuse, we're going to use these best of the, the rams and, and the best of the cattle and, and we're going to make a sacrifice to God. And you remember those strong words of, of Samuel there? Where Samuel says the Lord doesn't delight in those things. He said the Lord delights in obedience. Right here is the same scenario played over a few hundred years after that scenario. In other words, here these people are saying, if we've done all these terrible things, maybe we could just figure out some way to make our worship really, really generous to God. What's God's answer? Verse 8. This is where we're stopping tonight. So this, everything's been leading up to here. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Are you listening? You know, even though he's talking to Israel here, God's shown us what's good. Have you ever dealt unjustly towards someone? Have you ever failed to show mercy towards someone? Have you ever failed to walk with God? And then we say, well, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Maybe I need to do something great. Maybe I need to just wait for that moment for some big sign to come in my life. And God's saying, hello, I think I've shown you what is good. And he doesn't say to Israel, you need some radical event to happen in your life. He doesn't say that. He even says, what does the Lord require of you? And here it is but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Is it justice for a child in Africa to have to live in such depths of poverty and carry a pot of water And us turn our back on it? When we have a work right here in our congregation to support those people and to provide them fresh water and provide them the living water of Jesus Christ? Are we really dealing justly if we look at that with a cold heart and indifference? But at the same time, we say, that tugs at my heart. What about the child that's on the Wilson County human services list that's needing a place to sleep tonight? It's a lot easier to just worry about those on the other side of the world because it doesn't come home as quickly. God has never expected those who are noble, those who have influence, those who have resources. God has never dealt favorably toward them when they turn their back on the people that are hurting, on the ones in poverty. Instead of waiting for some huge, grand event in our life, what if we just got up and said, today, today, I want to help relieve somebody's pain in my community with the resources I have? 
or with the opportunities that this church has around the world. And you know, it's not just justice, but you know, God has a way of always taking something deeper and with greater meaning. And so he says, don't stop at justice, but go a huge step further and do it with mercy. Mercy is when we offer even more than what is deserved. Mercy is a part of that extra mile. Mercy is a part of, 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 of us instead of demanding and saying, oh, I'm not for sure if it's really my responsibility. Maybe it's somebody else. Who is my neighbor? Let me see if I can figure that out. Mercy is, am I the neighbor? Am I the one that's going to show mercy? What's the Lord want? Please get this. This is one of these, I, I want you to take and think on this one. I want you to think about this as you go to bed and I want you to say a prayer about this. I want you to think about this as you're driving tomorrow. Turn everything off and just think about this. He doesn't just say do justice and he doesn't just say be merciful, but notice the wording here. Love mercy. Have you and I gotten to that point in our life? Where instead of saying, God, don't show me anybody else that's hurting. I don't want to see hurting people, God. Have we gotten to the point now where we say, Lord, open my eyes. I want to help others. I want to serve those that are hurting. I love mercy. How many of us tonight love mercy that God offers? Where would we be without his mercy? If he didn't offer Jesus so that we could have spiritual justice... Where would we be without justice of that kind? You say, well, what's the answer? It's kind of like this morning's lesson. Are we an infant? Are we young? Or are we mature? What about that last thing he says? What does the Lord require? It's not just justice. It's not just love, mercy. But he says, walk humbly with God. You know the way we're going to do justice, the way we ought to do it, the way we're going to do mercy and love it the way we ought to is when we truly are walking with God. We know God. We walk with God to the point we know God. We know how He would help others because we've seen the work of God through thousands of years. We're not going to be able to stand on the day of judgment and find the favor and the grace of God mistreating and turning our back on people who hurt. God has shown us good. He has shown us what He requires. That's a strong word. What He requires of us. And He looks to a nation of people that have been plundering from the poor and he says, I want you to stand on trial. And the mountains will be my witness. It doesn't matter if you bring thousands of rams and offer them or rivers of oil to offer me. All I want is I want you to treat people right. Care for the people that are hurting. And this week, let that be our prayer. Let that be our life. That we look like God because we walk with God, humbly looking for those.
who need someone to be a voice and a hand and a resource to them. And when we do it, we're only doing what's required of us. Tonight, are you walking with God? Is there any way that we can help you tonight with that? If, if you need to respond and ask for prayers, if you need to respond and be baptized into Christ, if, if you need to respond and, and confess sin and pray forgiveness, there's not any of us here perfect, but surely all of us would say we want to be close to God. We want to walk with Him. And if we can help you walk with Him, come as we stand, as we sing.